Okay, here to go to the uh, papers in some more detail is uh, Sinead Ryan, columnist with independent newspapers, the Green Party leader Eamon Ryan, and the Irish Examiner columnist and indeed former government advisor Jared Howland. You're all very welcome, guys. Uh, listen, let's start with the the book. I think the Sunday Independent are calling it a book of the decade. Um, Eamon Gilmore's. Um, you've actually read it, Eamon Ryan. I think, haven't you? Yeah, no, I'm 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 reviewing it for the Irish Times, so I, I, I've the privilege of getting a copy, I suppose, ahead of others and reading it. And, and uh, I mean, I think it's not surprising that the Indo ran with the kind of the main story uh, first story being effectively you know that war that public now between Joan Burton and, and Eamon Gilmore I mean the first line in the book starts with I can't remember the exact wording but it's basically I was removed from office is his first line in the well, book what, what did he expect I mean if once he went as leader he was never going to stay on in the cabinet, was he? No, but I don't think that's the real story. I mean, there's a, throughout the book, effectively, he's saying people were briefing me from within the party, and it's fairly clear he's talking about Joan, Joan Burton. Instantly, just as an example, a kind of uh, there's when they're discussing that issue about the Attorney General and the Callanan tapes and everything, there's an instant in cabinet where they have to agree everyone puts their phones on the table. So no one can be texting from 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 that is it. From that, I, th- I, I read that this morning. I just thought that was a terrible indictment That's of this government. Of any, anything you have to put phones on table. But but the other line, like I just like going to a pub quiz and putting your mobile phone in a plastic right, bag. Yeah, is that yeah. what they're going to do next at cabinet? But the other real, I think, important and interesting line is, in a sense, the news that came from yesterday that Joan Burton was not looking to be finance minister at the start of the administration. And I think that's particularly important because I think it signals that that ultimately the problem that Labour had, not only did they have the problem that their Tesco ads promised everything and that they couldn't deliver on that, but also their fundamental economic analysis under Joan Burton as as finance spokesperson in opposition could never be held up when they came into government. So they had a difficulty how they managed that. And because there was Joan a lot of outrage at the time when jo- and a lot of columnists in newspapers were particularly annoyed when Joan Burton didn't get the finance job and Brendan Howland did. But it now seems in this book that um, she never wanted that job. She wanted foreign affairs. Because she couldn't. What you're saying in opposition wasn't possible, could not now be Now you would say that, delivered. of course, because you were would, a government at the time. But that's the reality. That's the truth. And, and, and I think there's a difficulty. I have one difficulty with the book. I have a real difficulty. Well, well uh, there's a lot of good things. In the is book, it, that, is it good, by the way? Yeah. If anyone was interested in Irish politics and, and the economic crisis, yes. And it's part of a series of books. But the one I start with difficulty with the title, The Crisis Government as if nothing had happened in the three or four pre- previous years. And well, this, this continues on the, the narrative put forward the by Enda Kenny. That Enda Kenny's putting out that we changed everything, we did everything different. It's not true. They, in the autumn of 2010, we went to both Fine Gael and Labour and said, listen, lads, we're, there's a real crisis in this country. We've got to work. We've got to have some sort of national government come together. Here's the books. Here's the figures. Here's the four-year plan. And it was written before anyone else came in. And do you know one of the things that happened at that time? Like Enda Kenny says, there was a coup, a strange coup, because the European Commission asked to meet Enda Kenny and Eamon Gilmer before any of that started, and they refused to meet. And that was at a time we, when we had already written the four-year plan. So we were writing Why the plan. Why did they didn't want to know? Because they didn't want to know, because it was politically much easier just to play the opposition politics game. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and that's the difficulty they had. With when they came into government, they couldn't play that anymore. So they've got to rewrite history, say everything changed completely differently. It didn't. Michael Noonan and Brian Lennon saw eye to eye. There was pretty much agreement before they went into government. We did a deal with the Labour Party in Fine Gael, which said that they would take back their, their motion of confidence, that we would put the finance bill through because they knew that's what had to be done. 
they knew the broad economic strategy that was been taken was the right one. So this stuff when, when Gilmore talks in his book and uh, about uh, we got into office and we got the briefing from the we Department of Finance. We suddenly discovered everything was different as to what we they thought. didn't. No, I mean, the dogs in the street knew what the story we was. We gave them the books. We opened the entire books to them. It's rubbish. And that's a difficulty they have. And that's why the whole narrative is... It, and that's the difficulty. I mean, they have, they have two difficulties in explaining the last four or five years. And listen, Eamon Gilmore and Ferenc and I would say... I would uh, say to him, fair play, the centre held, the centre left held, and we'd, you know, the country didn't fall apart and fair play to them, they implemented the four-year plan. We have not fallen in the way we could have fallen. I mean, it was tough, it was very hard for everyone in this country, but in fairness, you'd say, you, you know, you, you, you provided stability. He did that, and his colleagues did that. But, they, but in doing that, what they're undoing the good is in a sense they're lying about what actually, what they were doing. And but that's, I think, the they're problem. They're lying about it? it? In the sense that Enda Kennedy saying there was a coup and we knew nothing and everything changed when when we came in. When anyone can see, any right-thinking person can see, yeah, they followed the previous policy and uh, they adopted the well, four-year plan. One last question just before I bring in the rest of the panel. Uh, that line from Enda Kenny, and he, he, he has said it on a number of occasions, this idea that the banks were about to run out of money, the country was about to run out of money. Now, my understanding of that is that that genuinely was the case, oh, when, the case. when you were in office. Yeah, yeah, but true. once the Troika came in, that limit, but was there cabinet meetings with you, with you guys when you were in government where you said, you know what, we will not be able to pay teachers, nurses, oh, listen, doctors? That happened twice. Once in September 2008, which was, there, there was a real run in the banks. And actually, in that case, a, phys- a physical run as well as a kind of a, a electronic one. And then again in autumn 2010. And that case it was a wholesale run. So that was money. There was two, three billion leaving every day. And yes, it was. Listen, and I was did ring- you have emergency cabinet meetings about that? I was that? ringing the finance department every three or four hours saying what's happened, how much has lost got in the And what in was it? Was that when you took that decision to, was it six billion you cut off the, uh, off no, the budget? That had, been, that had already been decided. See, that's the thing. The four-year plan was written before all that real kind of, you know, the crisis stuff when the Troika came over. That had already been written and agreed by the Irish cabinet. It had been agreed by the European Commission. And at the time when Ollie Wren came over, he went to Eamon Gilmore and to Andrew Kenny said, I want to meet you to talk about this. What do you think? They refused to meet. And and that's the problem I have. And, 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 and that's do you the believe John the Taoiseach has. when he talks about the it's such a state of crisis but when they came into power that the, the banks could run out of money the, uh, they wouldn't have enough money oh, to pay true, wages is, you see this is where you're, the, you're right what you said earlier on Endicane is conflating two different crises um, the crisis they were involved in was a wider euro crisis and yes there was a real risk at that time I'm sure Patrick Conan did say to him listen we've got to have plans because the euro could fold here it was yeah. very close in 2011-2012 to a wider systemic crisis in the euro but that was quite different to the one. That would have been the case even if we had our house in yes, order. Yes, and, and we, by and large, okay. we weren't to the centre. That was to do with Cyprus and Greece and other countries. It wasn't to do with us. I think Enda Kenny and Emma Gimmert, to a certain extent, I think they've re- retold the story so often in this weird way that they actually believe it themselves. But I don't think any credible person could believe it because it doesn't marry with the facts and that's the problem they have. Okay, um, Jared Hallam, what do you make of it? Well, I suppose uh, in terms of Eamon Gilmore and Anna Kenny, their their problem is, uh, first of all, they're telling their yarns in the context, firstly, of internal party politics and secondly, of imminent electoral politics. But of course, the longer view of history will be not that they were the crisis government, but they were the continuity crisis government. 
uh, because the crisis government was the one that preceded it. Brian Cowan and Brian Lenehan and, and Eamon Ryan. Now again, people listening will say, oh yeah, Jared Allen would, uh, would say that because, you know, he, you know, he used to work for Fianna Fáil. That it was, it was, it was that government that sort yeah, of. Well, said. I, I've said uh, before, and let me say again. I think uh, it was the Fianna Fáil that I worked for uh, that did a lot of the digging of the hole that slid us into the crisis in the first place, uh, and I think it was the. Uh, post-2008 government and I was gone by that stage so I had no hand actor part in it and certainly deserve no part of the credits for it um, that you know took the initial first essential steps in getting us back out again and I think that is a fair and an accurate view of history um, I think also that uh, Eamon uh, Gilmore and um, Enda Kenny deserve a lot of credits for a lot of the things they did. During they the did first take tough decisions, isn't it? Absolutely. And just because they continued the policies of their predecessor, which is precisely what they did, it doesn't mean they don't deserve a lot of credit for it because it was politically extremely challenging, but within their respective parties in government and within the wider electoral situation to do that. And they do deserve credit for that. And that's a large part of why uh, the continuity of those two governments together, we are in recovery now. And of course, it's a desperate uh, manoeuvring now uh, to try and gain credit, to try and reshape the narrative because there's an, uh, there's an internal uh, I- issue being played out within Labour. And Eamon Gilmore's timing, much more than what he says, the timing of his doing it uh, is smacks of a very, very cold plate of revenge. Right. Yeah, t- timing as in coming, what, 90 days before a for, general for election? an election. Where, he, and he could not have predicted this, but he is abetted accidentally by John Burton's uh, deputy leader, Alan Kelly, in, in a different guise, playing a different game as well. OK, um, Sinead Ryan, you're probably more the most neutral in the room in relation uh, to this. What, what do you make of... Uh, into, that point Eamon was saying, firstly, about Joan Burton not taking the finance portfolio. Is, is that something that resonates with you? I find that very uh, strange because you'll remember at the time when... when Ender sorry, I should have said, she, it's not that she didn't take it, she wasn't, she wasn't yeah, seeking it. Yeah, that's the bit that I find strange because at the time, do you remember Ender was announcing his cabinet and, we, and everybody was in the door expecting them to walk down the steps and, and line up in the way that they do and, and there was some speculation about who would get what post. And that was delayed. Do you remember in, in the Doyle there was a whole kind of hour where nothing happened and everybody was mm. wondering, where are they all? What, what are they doing? And the story that went around was that, that Joan was having some kind of a hissy fit over not getting the finance portfolio. She ended up with social protection and then pronounced herself delighted. Um, but, but I find it hard to believe that she wanted the foreign affairs because um, if she, like for a leader to be to be foreign affairs is a very, very difficult thing to do. As as Eamon Gilmore found out, it's extraordinarily tough to um, geographically and time-wise. Because she was a leader at the time, though. Exactly. But, uh, so, but clearly had ambitions. But she had ambitions. Yeah. So if that was her goal to ultimately, you know, oust Eamon Gilmore, become leader, then being Minister for Foreign Affairs would have made no sense at all, it seems to me. Finance would be her obvious. But um, if she ever became Connacht, she'd could then not yeah, she could stop being minister for it, foreign it affairs. It made complete sense that like she had been finance spokesperson. Why why not want the finance portfolio? That story made sense at the time. So it's hard to know. Um, she's done. Uh, you know, I have to say. Uh, even if she was given the kind of the, the second best option, she has done a sterling job within that department, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of the Labour promises went by the wayside because she actually managed to hold on to a lot of the social welfare benefits for people and then subsequently became leader. So, you know, it, it kind of is a non-story, I suppose, now. At the time it was, but a lot of the extracts from this book seem to be about 
Eamon Gilmore navel gazing and and kind of whinging poor me, poor me. I, I'm with Jared. I think the story is actually not what he says. The story is why Tell now? Me. Because we but for the grace of whatever, we would be in election mode now with posters on lampposts and this book would be published. And it seems to undermine Labour more than anything it does for Eamon Gilmore personally. I, I can't have it, Joan, but you're not going to have it either. Yeah, it seems to be. And also there's one word attributed to uh, him in this book and, and Eamon has read it in the Irish Independent yesterday that in relation to m- opposition to Mary Whelan's appointment as Attorney General, he accuses those who uh, were you know, suggesting that she wasn't the best appointment of misogyny. Uh, but I saw that. I, thought I, it was I really find that statement. offensive because the Maura Whelan appointment was a singularly ill-judged one. And that's not a subjective opinion. It's not a biased opinion. It's not a partisan opinion. It is a fair takeaway from the Fennelly report. Okay. Uh, period. And at the same time, if you look at Gilmore's own treatment of women in his own party, including Roisin Shorthall mm. uh, and Joan Burton, and then to selectively use the misogyny accusation, I mean, it's really cheap and tacky. OK. Um, Eamon Ryan, just, uh, just lastly uh, on, on Gilmore. Uh, I mean, this, uh, you, you've, you've read more of it mm. than we have. I mean, this thing about him mentally writing a, a statement of resignation over the Garda Commissioner. Uh, you know, I actually think Eamon Gilmore is a, a very impressive politician. I don't think he comes across particularly impressive in that, the idea of mentally writing a statement and then being, uh, you know, pers- uh, assured by what the Taoiseach had to say. He, they, Labour were kept in the dark in relation to the, the Garda Commissioner story. They were. Um, uh, listen, I'd, I think we'd get away from the policy. Part of what we're just talking about there, that politics of conspiracy, the sinister other, uh, you know, kind of the conspiracy. Listen, Eamon Gilmore is a straight, decent, hardworking, good con- Agreed, con- yeah. constituency politician who was doing his best. Right, he's a bit more than a constituency politician. No, no, no. no so he, he was that as well. And, yeah. you know, I mean, he was a and he wrote it himself. He said he went into politics to be problem solved and do the practical stuff, you know, kind of. And he, I, I think to a certain extent, I remember meeting him in the middle of his time in his office astonished and Jesus, he looked tired. I mean, it was, it's a hard place to be. It's a hard thing to do. I think, um, I think Jared's right. I think what the story here, though, is, is a kind of, a, is in a sense, is a going back over to f- certain scores are being settled and certain kind of uh, points have been made with a view to kind of to fight back and to fight for reputation. I think to a certain extent he didn't need to do that. He should have just stood on the record of, you know, I went in, I did what I could. And I don't think um, I, I have a slight fear if, if it adds to a further distrust and cynicism among Irish people about politics, that's not what we need at the moment. We need a certain sense of politicians are ordinary, decent people, by and large. They, they go into the business of politics f- with good motives and in 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 attentions, if we get a, what just happened at the moment a little bit is a fracturing everywhere, a breaking down, a fighting in the left particularly. And I would see myself. I'm in a strange place because I'm competing with Emma Gilmer. Like we're centre left and we're in the same space. I just think it'd be very. It's just a distant. In the last week, you seem to have everyone fighting with each other on left and and elsewhere. And if Irish people come out of that thinking, God, Irish politics is just dysfunctional, that would be a disservice to politics. uh, But it was ever thus. I mean, Labour and the left have always been uh, uh, more fighting with themselves than with anybody else. uh, And that is their downfall. I mean, Labour uh, as a party themselves have always been split. And, you know... It's the old joke about the the Irish left-wing party, the first item on the agenda is the split. split. And and now you have these, uh, these, uh, this separate story, which is all these left parties trying to get together to form some kind of transfer pact within within themselves for the 
for the election. I mean, you can see initially it's heading off a cliff and, and you're thinking if they could just agree on some stuff and, and talk among themselves as if they were all, you know, heading towards the same big goal, they might get somewhere. Our uh, panel today, Sinead Ryan, columnist with Independent Newspapers, Green Party leader Eamon Ryan and Irish examiner, columnist uh, Jared Howland. We're going through the Sunday papers, as I said. Uh, lots of stuff, uh, Jared Howland, as you would expect, on uh, Alan Kelly versus Michael Noonan. Uh, Alan Kelly, the uh, the nickname AK-47 being used quite a lot <laughs> throughout the uh, throughout the papers. Um, it's it's hard to know where this one is going to end, but certainly Michael Loon seems to be sticking to his guns, basically. And the Department of Finance think it this will not work. This idea of a rent cap. There's a lot of guns in this story, isn't there? There is. There yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's hard to see uh, Ma- Michael Noonan and ending up being 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 humiliated in in, in all of this. Uh, and clearly, there are wheels within wheels, both within the Labour Party and within government I- I leading up to this. But Alan Kelly's. Uh, really single issue agenda is to get re-elected in South Tipperary or in in all of Tipperary so he was in North Tipperary previously and if he can get re-elected and he has a chance uh, that means it's game on we don't know the name of the game for any Labour TD that comes back after the next election but at least he'll be talked out and on the pitch uh, and so I we have the no- are you saying we have the novel idea of a deputy leader of the Labour Party looking to one day become leader of the Labour Party? That could or never what's happen. Le- or, or what's left of it. Uh, but th- that is his agenda uh, and that is the, the overarching narrative here. In, in terms of the policy issue in, in relation to, to housing, um, you know, he has not built a, a coalition uh, of the willing around the cabinet table on this. Uh, and that is a political failure. Uh, you know, if you want to get your agenda pursued in cabinet, you need friends, n- not enemies. Now, it may come that in the next week or two, uh, simply to avert a crisis, simply to save face, uh, that something is done uh, on his behalf as much as by him. Uh, and let, let's wait and see. But, um, you know, I really find it astonishing that he, as Minister for the Environment, as Minister for Housing, effectively, is lashing out at the central bank mm. uh, when the central bank's policy are working effectively, preventing the housing market overheating. It's arguably the, the one. It's arguably the one part of our housing policy that is working, uh, that 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 is credible, um, and that at the same time he's blaming his predecessors, unnamed officials, um, and, and 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 cabinet colleagues. You know, you are if you are a minister, you are supposed to be the man with the plan. Um, Sinead, you obviously cover the, the issue of uh, consumer protection quite a lot. The, the issue of rent controls, do you buy this uh, argument that it would make a big difference? Obviously rent is a huge issue for people and rents are going up at, at quite a rate. It is, but this isn't the solution and Alan Kelly I think is on a hiding to nothing by continuing to pursue it. He is fighting with his own party, he's fighting with the wider government and more important he's fighting with the central bank and as Jared said and that, like they have already knocked this out of the water. There is a difference, he's called it rent certainty as opposed to rent control. And, and you link it into the consumer price index and all that kind of stuff. See, it works in countries and you keep citing places like Germany and Denmark where it works. It works because there's a whole other set of things in place that make it work. In Ireland, 70% of landlords are amateur landlords. They're the fellows who brought up the, bought up the house next door during the boom and are now letting it out. You cannot have effective 
uh, rent controls in a scenario like that where you have big REIT funds or pension funds who own massive blocks of apartments fine that's okay with strong tenancy laws built in because they're prepared to take a long view get their 4% profit over 30 years no problem with that and we the reason you can't do it in our market here. is because what they'll just exit the market they'll just basically. exit the market and what will happen is that you might well get houses put back on the market more likely you'll get them repossessed because we already have a big repo problem about 22 or 23% of all buy to lets are in arrears now, you put a rent control where you can't have a landlord saying, well, actually, I need to up the rent to cover this, to wash the face on this product. It gets reput by the bank. And where are you then? So it goes in and, and it goes into an Amazon. So the ho- the, in, in the short term, it looks like an immediate, comfortable solution. In the big picture game, which is what Mr Kelly seems not to be able to get above in a helicopter, it cannot and will not work. There is a rental crisis, no doubt about that, and supply is the problem here. But there's a separate story um, in the uh, in the business in the business post talking about why developers won't build apartments because the councils have brought in new rules with regard to dual aspect windows, the size yeah. of it, balconies, all that kind of thing. And the developers are going, hold on a second, it's going to cost us for 100 bed units an extra 1.9 million just to meet these requirements. Next year, the passive house requirements come in. That's all the eco, the insulation, the, all the BORs, all that. The minute you bring this in, and they're good ideas, they should be there. We don't want people living in shoe boxes that are dangerous. But but you have private developers saying, sure, what's the point? Yeah. You know, okay. and okay. you're giving them tax breaks to sit on land instead of punishing them. Now, Alan Kelly talked I think about that's this last issue. year. Yeah, Use it or lose it. Yeah. He brought that in. It went absolutely nowhere. Okay, uh, we are going to be talking to John Fitzgerald, the economist, about the uh, the property sector after uh, 11 o'clock. Eamon Ryan, I mean, the, the Green Party held environment up until mm-hmm. uh, the, the, uh, the election. What, what do you make of, of Kelly's approach? Because he does seem to... Um, he does seem to adopt a kind of a take no prisoners attitude, doesn't he? And he has no authority. He has no authority among his colleagues. And once you lose your authority in cabinet, you find it very difficult to do anything. And that's where he's stuck. Well, it's not fair. Why do you say he's no authority? Because his own cabinet's briefing against him. His own department's briefing against him. They clearly don't believe that he he's not able to do what he says he wants to do. So right, that's, the, the, that's the alternative no argument would be that he's running into brick walls. And you know, what, what, what do you do when you run into brick walls? You try is, and knock no them down. Wa- the problem is there's no brick walls. The problem is we don't have any housing being built. And I think uh, he, he should, as, uh, as Jared says, we need a plan. And we need actually real quick, effective measures. I don't agree with Sinead that that should include, which is what one of the things he's doing is say, take back some of the standards. Like he wants to weaken planning standards. He's saying one-off housing in the country. Let's take away the planning standards. That's the last thing we need. We need to learn from the mistakes we made over the last 20 years and get good quality housing. We need to build close to the centre of our cities. So we need very strong direction. I think we need directly elected mayors. One of the things both himself and Phil Hogan got rid of, which can pull people together and make things happen. So we use the vast areas of public available land in the centre of our cities that we could use to build housing. He's not talking about any of that. He's not doing any of that. Uh, he's not building anything. And I think one of the things changes me, I would be in favour of some sort of rental control system because I think there are people in the rental sector that are being hammered at the moment and we do need to help them. And I think we can without stymieing the, the uh, incentive to to build. But we also at the same time, as Colin um, uh, M- M- McCarthy says in the Sunday Independent today, we need to increase the supply. And I think we need 
not to waste a crisis, use this crisis to change the nature of our social housing system. Okay. Take on board what the National Economic so- Social Council has said, move to a completely different cost rental model. He's doing none of that. Okay. Nothing's happening. Jared Han, just, just to, I suppose, to, to bookend this, mm. uh, I mean, with, you've, you know, Eamon Gilmore having pops at Joan mm. Burton, Michael Noonan, Alan Kelly at Daggers mm. Drawn, um, the Taoiseach talking about the army having mm. to protect ATMs, mm. uh, albeit well, a few it, years it, ago. It, it, well, what happened to the government's message of chaos, stability? Yeah. Uh, what is the chaos? Uh, versus what is the stability. They really are uh, making a bags of it. You know, they have one slim chance, which is to get it together, to hold it together consistently every hour of every day for the next three or four months so they can demonstrate they are the credibility and the stability versus the chaos. There's a lot of chaos out there to point to, by the way, uh, in terms of the left, the centre-left and all the rest. But they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot in the last few weeks. Reminds me of the pre that weeks and months in the lead-in to the local and European elections in 2014 when they destroyed the careers of dozens and dozens of Labour and Fine Gael councillors because of the gross ineptitude of the handling of their own agenda in government. Uh, the issue of this, uh, we, we talked about it a little bit before the breaker came up, um, uh, Eamon Ryan, the, uh, this, this right to change uh, platform, which... <sighs> I mean, it's been a limited success, hasn't it? I mean, some people have signed up to it, but but probably more haven't. Sinn Féin, obviously, very keen to wrap themselves in the cloak of a, a the sort of left-wing uh, government, but not other parties on the left. Not so keen. Uh, by the way, were you asked in the Green no, Party? I was kind of thinking, why not, lads? Because yeah, we feel actually a bit, you feel a bit hurt by no, the no, omission. No, we're, we're meeting them next week, and one of the things I'm kind of keen to find out. I mean, I very strongly connected. I would be supportive of the right to water campaign at the very start. Like that came, started from a whole precept about maintaining the public ownership of water, and really good principles and really good practical kind of. Uh, uh, advice that I'd buy into a lot of it. I still believe we have to put a price on water because ultimately it's yeah, a, the right it's to water a, campaign. Don't. Well, I think that's I'm no, talking about to see uh, what their primary. Amy, I can tell you now, the they, don't, original, they don't want to pay the water charges. The original right to water campaign across Europe, not just now, was around the issue of public ownership, and that I'd 100% agree. And I think there's real common ground in terms of some of the changes we need to make. Amy, with respect, that sounds very naive. It was not about oh. public ownership. It was about not wanting to pay water. Well, charges. that's why I think it's been steered. I think it's been steered in that direction by A, the Socialist World Party and Sinn Féin then to cover their left flank following that. And I think that's a problem. And I think the unions now, Brendan Ogle and others, have kind of rode in and placed this in a very political place. And I think uh, I'm keen to find out what exactly are they talking about? Is this a big political project, which it seems to be, which doesn't have anything to do with water, really, but it's about a much wider agenda? And if that's what it is, I think they should be upfront about it. But I think it's... I Could think you see yourself signing up to the pact? I wouldn't. It depends what's in the pact. But but uh, uh, I couldn't see us signing up to something where we said we don't ge- we don't care about the environment and we're not going to put a you know kind of a, a, a some sort of measure which promotes conservation. That's our one in the water issues. One of the key things we think we okay. do a fair way of uh, of promoting conservation. But I'm keen to talk to them and see what they have to say. Okay. Um, Jared Hallen, uh, Stephen Collins writing about this issue uh, yesterday in the Irish Times. There is no question. This election is going to be unlike any other election, I think, probably in the history. There's no, it looks like there could be no party with more than 30% of the vote. Uh, the vote is going to be splintered and mm. fractured. Uh, transfers are going to be of huge importance, probably much more so than in, in 
previous elections where maybe transfers are, are overestimated. I think um, Audrin Flynn was saying in something like 80% of the, the, the cases previously, mm. the, the, the TDs or the, the, the politicians who were in first, second, third, fourth place, whatever the, the number of seats after the first count tended to be elected in 80% of the cases. It, this might be different though this time around. Correct. I mean, if you look at the 2011 election, um, Fianna Fáil got 17% of the vote but only uh, 12% of the seats. Sinn Féin got 10% of the vote but only 8% of the seats. Uh, Fine Gael got 36% of the vote but they got 46% of the seats. So this is the scale of the importance of transfers. If you go back to 1973, Fianna Fáil then increased its vote to an astonishing 46% and lost power because Fine Gael and Labour, for the first time in 16 years, had an effective transfer pact in, in, in place. In relation to Sinn Féin and Right to Change, uh, they're looking at that number where they got 10% of the vote and only 8% of the seats, uh, and they want to address that. And even if this assists them to do that only in a small way and delivers the crucial couple of hundred votes in a handful of constituencies that can swing two, three or four seats its way, that might not otherwise come to them, then it, it, it's, it's hugely important. Uh, in relation to this whole sort of uh, right to change, um, sort of left alliance, it is based on a protest movement abetted by some in some trade unions that's based on a contradiction that can never be resolved. It's not based on promoting public services. It is based on a refusal to pay for public services. So you cannot on the one hand have a left agenda that is even remotely credible, that is supported by a movement which is essentially all against paying for anything under any circumstances. Sinead Ryan, do you you agree with that? Well, we're back to the original question, which is where we started the show, was this fracturing of the left, you know, and this inability to understand, I think, themselves what it is they want. I mean, we had parties like Sinn Féin, for instance, who are against property taxes. I mean, that is an extraordinary state of affairs. They're the ones who want wealth tax, wealth tax. This is the panacea to all ills. This pays for everything else. Well, here's a wealth tax. People who own property pay for it and they're against it. So I think the agenda is that if you're you know, it, it, who was it that said, you know, anger is not a policy? Like, isn't that Tom where, McCarthy, they're, I think yeah, isn't it was, that where it? they're yeah. at at the moment? So, so it's what they want to be is voted in because they're not for something as opposed to a cohesive solution. I mean, not wanting to pay water charges. Sure, nobody wants to pay water charges. That's not the point. The point is, do you want services? Do you want utilities? Do you want the country to run properly? It has to be paid for one way or the other. So if you don't want to pay for water charges, fine. Your income tax has to go up then. Is that okay? Is that preferable? So if so, come out and say it. And we'll do the whole thing through central taxation and nobody pays a a damn bill beyond that. Okay, uh, listen, you've got a a newspaper in front of you, the Mail on Sunday. Interesting story, just to change tack for a little bit, about the the numbers using our roads, which certainly would appear to uh, point to a very strong economic recovery. I was on the M50 yesterday on a Saturday afternoon. I could not believe the congestion. And and I I have noticed, and I think anybody who's on the M50 has noticed a massive increase in traffic. Um, I mean, I'm on it nearly every day and it has has just got steadily worse and worse and worse. The Mail ran a a story and they did a kind of an analysis of the different junctions and where the numbers have soared. Uh, So, uh, I mean, the M50 gets 130 30,000 cars per day which is absolutely extraordinary uh, and traffic is up 
they, they reckon about 10%. And of course, as with the economic recovery, this is essentially a good news story because it means people are at work, people can afford to buy cars, they're, they're moving around the place. So uh, wh- what it really mm. is about is what we do to make sure that we can manage that, that we're not going to end up back in gridlock, back with the kind of the barrier system on the off ramps that road is so badly designed um, from its infancy that that it's now nearly impossible to kind of fix it and get it right Eamon Ryan I'm guessing you have strong views on this issue having spent actually I spent the three weeks at the oral hearing and the widening of the M50 I was involved in transport campaigning at the time and it was interesting because it was saying one thing is certain the M50 is going to gridlock and we're close. That's going to happen in the next five years. It is going to gridlock. It's a mathematical certainty. We cannot manage it uh, with the system we have in place at the present time. And this relates to the housing issue we were talking about earlier, because because of that, because all national roads lead to the M50, we're going to have to, if we're going to build housing, have to build within it in the Dublin area. And the same, we have to build up Cork, Galway, Limerick, so we spread the development of the country, because the transport system is going to restrict what is possible for us to actually do in terms of housing. Um, and and it, that will take real political guts because in the absence of this government having built the metro and the other big public transport projects, we're going to have to build really high quality local transport systems, bus networks, cycling, pedestrians. That could actually be a very good benefit in, in a strange way. But the, but the reality is the M50 is going to gridlock. It mathematically cannot cope with additional traffic. That traffic is going to come as, as the country lifts. So we're going to have to really have a very strong political idea as to what is the alternative that we're going to provide. Mm. And the public transport projects have been put back 15, 20 years now. So they're not going to be available in, in place. That means we have to go with the likes of the city centre plan in, in Dublin, which a lot of people are afraid of, which is actually, I think, the right plan to take traffic out of College Green, take the traffic off the quays, give the buses priority, make the Lewis's work, allow people to cycle and walk safely. That is going to, that is the only option we have available to us to what is the certainty of the M50 gridlocking. And at the same time, we have to start building high quality housing close to the centre so people can walk, cycle and take the bus to work. Jared Howland. Well, first of all, transport, Eamon is so right, transport and, and housing are totally interconnected. But in hindsight, the single biggest mistake that this government has made uh, will be not going ahead with the Dart Underground mm. uh, project. That would have given the most capacity, the quickest, to transport in and out of Dublin. It would have done a lot for housing in mm. the medium as well as the longer mm. term. And it is, is the essential thing that the and next government will have to deal money with as the M50 does grid. And the money for it was in the four-year plan. That's the real disgrace. They could not have said that they couldn't do it under the four-year plan. It was provided for. The money would have been available from from, uh, from Europe. We could have easily built it as a counter uh, project in the middle of the downturn and they threw it away for ideological reasons. That's going to cost well, us... I don't they threw it away for ideological they reasons. They did because there. ultimately they don't... They, I think Fine Gael Labour are... are they don't believe in public transport. OK, all right, look, we'll, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, my thanks to Sinead Ryan, columnist with Independent Newspapers, to uh, Green Party leader Eamon Ryan and to Irish examiner and columnist uh, Jared Helen.